1: Are young doctors prepared to treat the growing number of people being diagnosed with diabetes? Joining us to discuss a recent study on newly trained physicians and diabetes is pediatric endocrinologist at Texas Tech Health Science Center in Odessa, Texas, Dr. Stephen Ponder. Dr. Ponder, welcome to ReachMD.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Hey, a recent study indicated that newly trained physicians know nothing about diabetes or barely nothing. You and I have been living with this for so long, not only diabetes, but also being in the teaching arena. What, what are the main reasons for this?
2: I think uh, looking at the study, it really showed that there was too little emphasis on ambulatory care, which is, interestingly enough, where most of us do our our work. Ninety percent of physicians uh, work in the clinic, yet the predominant emphasis in training is in the hospital setting uh, and uh, in the intensive care setting and and with subspecialists as well, not necessarily endocrinologists. There's also an increasing complexity of diabetes care that you and I have seen over the last 30, 40 years uh, that results in a greater fund of knowledge that these individuals need to master, and because of this disproportionate emphasis on specialty care uh, in their residency training, they don't really get the, the key nuances of how to work with patients, how to motivate patients, how to, the, the role of education, perhaps, in, in diabetes uh, management.
1: Yeah, you know, it never ceases to amaze me when a resident rotates through our our teaching clinic at UCSD, they're third-year residents, yet they've never heard of uh, a, a GLP-1 agonist like Bayeda or Victoza. They, they are amazed when they see an insulin pen, for God's sake, and then continuous glucose monitor, they, they're saying, gee, that's, that's amazing. They get all amazed. And I think they should know that. You know, Earl Hirsch, uh, who's at the University of Washington in Seattle and has been on the show Uh, said that a medical student gets training in diabetes less than 1% of the time during medical school. And I'm a big believer that they should spend as much time as how common the disease is. And, uh, you know, what are some of the things that they're going to need to fix when it comes to these training programs?
2: Well, I think there needs to be a greater emphasis on outpatient uh, management. The study that I refer to in my article was uh, from Dr. Sisson and uh, Dalal over at Johns Hopkins, and what they were looking at were internal medicine residents and their level of training, their fund of knowledge in 2006 and 2007 uh, based on assessments that were performed by an automated uh, um, uh, education module system that they'd created over there um, and what they showed was the medicine residents at levels 1, 2, and 3, years 1, 2, and 3, uh, didn't progress a whole lot over that time frame. Uh, and one of the lowest uh, scoring domains was in uh, the management of type of, of diabetes, uh, of any type of diabetes for that matter.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned uh, you know, talking to patients and knowing what motivates them. How does this mentoring process? Uh, type of approach fit.
2: We should have mentors, of course, for all of our medical training, and I think we need to have uh, uh, passionate mentors, and and that's not always easy to find. I think that um, in my training, for example, I worked with somebody who uh, had a very strong desire to educate and teach about diabetes management, and I wish I could say that every institution has people like that, but that's frankly not the case. I think that uh, mentoring uh, is not just somebody that you follow around, but somebody who discusses with you, challenges you. uh, uh, makes you think outside the box and, and makes you think of other ways, uh, other reasons why, for example, a patient may not be doing well with their diabetes. It may have nothing to do with their adherence. It may be the fact that they're living in a very difficult home environment, or they may be struggling financially, or they may have beliefs that uh, run contrary to, uh, to proper diabetes uh, self-care. And our challenge uh, as mentors is to teach people how to do this in a very sensitive way uh, with, um, with the students that, uh, that are under our charge. Uh, to to get them to work with the patients, to move them in a direction towards self-care that will improve their long-term outcomes.
1: Well, Steve, the mentor program sounds great. Is there any downside to the mentor-mentee program when it comes to residency training?
2: I think many mentors these days ha- have uh, a lot of uh, things on their plate. They have research duties. They have uh, to perhaps increase their clinical volume for uh, uh, revenue generation and, and certainly teaching duties and other administrative roles. I think it's gotten really difficult to juggle that, uh, those, wear those three hats uh, anymore. And I think quite often when you spend a half day in clinic and you've got the other rest of the week doing those other duties, uh, you may be rushing through the clinic. And I think a mentor has to be careful that they have the time to spend with their mentee uh, to explain what's going on to to demonstrate and be a role model, if you will, for that mentee that uh, we may not have as much time for as we did in the past. And I think I've seen that and I've heard that from uh, many uh, new doctors coming out of their residency training program uh, that things do get rushed uh, quite often in their continuity clinics that uh, I didn't experience uh, 25, 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, and I think I think our big university clinics and administrators need to realize that this is a common disease, and they they need to put a little more resources and hire faculty who are more clinically oriented versus basic research oriented. Is there any other profession that could be a mentor? Could it be a diabetes nurse practitioner? It Could be a dietitian? I don't you know what we're referring to as mentors
2: you and I both work in the field of, uh, of the team management uh, of diabetes. And we're a physician uh, quite frankly is part of the team, the management team, uh, patient-centric uh, with the patient being the center of the team and I think that any member of the team that you create for your patients whether it's the diabetes educator, the dietitian, a social worker, an exercise physiologist, all of these individuals in addition to the family members can also be mentors in some ways to the to the, to the patient. Uh, if we're focusing on, on professional Professional mentoring, then yes, uh, the nurse educator, the, uh, the diabetes dietitian, uh, a nurse practitioner, uh, anyone who, who has a specific interest or passion in working with these, these uh, patients is going to be a huge asset to, to the education of the, of, the, of the young physician. In fact, most of my training, I'll tell you right now, was provided by uh, experienced diabetes nurse, edu- nurse educators. My mentor, as great as he was, was busy seeing patients. He had research to do. He had papers to write and books to, chap- uh, to, to develop. And uh, I spent a lot of my time with the people that uh, he worked directly with who actually did the face-to-face time with the patients. And I learned a tremendous amount in the process.
1: Yeah, you know, I agree. I I always say, who should be taking care of people with diabetes in this country? And the answer would be anybody who's interested. Now, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Stephen Ponder. We are discussing the lack of knowledge of newly trained physicians that they have in terms of managing diabetes. We can talk about how to teach young doctors about diabetes care, you know, starting in their first year, let's say, going all the way through using mentors in their residency. But what about, what do people do out in the trenches listening right now?
2: Most people out there want to have uh, some sort of format, some sort of protocol or checklist. And I think that's a double-edged sword Uh, in training, uh, most of the residents and the students I see uh, have, have shifted in the last 15 or 20 years, and they just want me sometimes just to tell them what to do. Uh, I think sometimes that's a reflection of the pressures, the time pressures that they're under, the performance pressures that they're under, and I think that contrary to when I was in training where I was quite often challenged to, to explain the pathophysiology and develop my own solutions to the to the problems, we've, we've seen a new paradigm emerge in the last 15, 10 or 15 years uh, in regards to how people want to be instructed. Uh, quite often is show me the protocol, give me the algorithm, uh, give me a checklist, and that's finding good for getting started, but I really think that we're doing people a disservice unless we explain to them the whys and, and the hows uh, of, those, of those particular approaches. If
1: you were designing a medical school curriculum, you know, what would you do differently compared to what we have now?
2: I think I would, I would partner residents uh, with diabetes educators. Uh, just like uh, we're all expected to have a continuity clinic in our training, I think uh, identifying uh, several uh, diabetes patients that a, a new resident could take charge of for at least the three years they're in their training combined with the experience of a diabetes education team, which we alluded to earlier, uh, would be a great way to mentor a young doctor through the three years of their training because that's going going to be a, an example of what they'll be doing in, in the real world is to taking charge of that patient, trying to help motivate them to move them in a certain direction and to be part of a team rather than be expected to be the team leader uh, right out of the starting gate.
1: Yeah, and I think I, I agree with that. I think it really takes uh, time to become a diabetes specialist. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. It just You have to put time into it and you have to see patients. And I think you have to really spend time on the emotional part of it, because so many diabetics get labeled as non-compliant, especially those type 2s, you know, and they don't prick their finger as many times, they don't take their injections, and, and as you mentioned earlier, there may be lots of barriers
2: I think you and I both know, having lived with this disease as long as we have, that 90% of it is behavioral, attitudinal, uh, your your empowerment, and 10% of it's medical. Over the 40 years we've had this disease, we've seen a tremendous chain, number of changes in the technologies, yet the the need to make uh, quality choices, informed choices, and use your own experience to make better choices in the future is really the key to, to living successfully with this disorder.
1: Well, as we come to the end of the show, I thought I would bring up Uh, a common condition and do some teaching to our listeners. You and I can both teach them about uh, a a common situation that relates to our topic today is the the late-onset type 1 diabetes, also called LADA, latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. That's so commonly missed by physicians out in the community, certainly by folks in residency training?
2: We've spent the last, what, 80 years or so categorizing different types of diabetes. It, it, for example, we started with juvenile onset, which then became insulin-dependent, ketosis-prone, and ultimately ultimately type 1 diabetes. The, the correlate to that was adult diabetes, non-insulin-dependent, non-ketotic-prone, ketosis-prone, and type 2. And so th- I see the same thing you do. There's this uh, uh, almost this slavish adherence to age as some sort of criteria as to whether you have type 1 or type type 2 diabetes. And when you put a label on somebody, somebody all, all you result in is leading to assumptions and expectations, which are not always, you know, fulfilled. And Lotta is a great example. Uh, a, a lean uh, adult individual developing glucose intolerance quite often is immediately labeled as type 2, even in the area of the country where I live, even though they don't have any of the evidence of insulin resistance, which is what you would expect to see with type 2 diabetes. And so there's not a lot of exploration that goes on as, in regards to other possibilities.
1: Well, uh, thank you so much for helping us mentor our listeners. I'd like to thank our guest, pediatric endocrinologist at Texas Tech Health Science Center in Odessa, Texas, Dr. Stephen Ponder. Dr. Ponder, thank you so much for spending
0: time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash D-I-A. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan,
1: who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years.
0: Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight Cardiovascular risk and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes. Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does?
1: What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety?
0: Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.